the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, those who stare into the sun revealed to be gifted with universal consciousness and wisdom, rendered useless because they're so stupid they stare into the sun. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have Larry Correa in the studio for the first time. Also along is Bain Executive Editor Jim Menz. Larry discusses Monster Hunter Siege, the Monster Hunter Files, what he's working on now. And Jim Menz joins in with thoughts about what it's like to be the editor of Larry on a great many of his uh, wonderful books. It's a great fun roundtable, so that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Leiden Universe novel Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Now here's the news. Dum, 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 da-dum. Yeah, the new November mass market paperbacks are here, suddenly looming like small monoliths, bringing alien knowledge and serving as gateways to wondrous realities. Hey, and Mass Market Now is the latest Ring of Fire solo novel by Eric Flint. This one is 1636 The Ottoman Onslaught. Armed with new weapons inspired by the time-displaced Americans of Grantville, the Turks are determined to capture Vienna, Uh uh-oh, and the Ottomans, possessing airships, breech-loading rifles, rockets, and even primitive tanks, are set for success. The only force that may stand to stop them is the United States of Europe 3rd Division, commanded by the redoubtable Mike Stearns. Also out is The Golden Gate by Robert Butner. When the world's richest man is the victim of a car bomb and literally blown off the Golden Gate Bridge, the attack is attributed to terrorists and the world moves on. But two people pursue the truth, take journalist Kate Boyle and Iraq war veteran Ben Shepard, discover a cosmic secret that can change human history and may cost them their lives. 1636, The Ottoman Onslaught by Eric Flint and The Golden Gate by Robert Butner are now available at booksellers everywhere. Welcome, Larry Correa, to the podcast. Um, and this time we have Larry at the Bain offices in the studio for the first time ever. Uh, we, he's, he's certainly a, a regular uh, appearer on the podcast, but it's, it's great to have him here. So welcome, Larry. Uh, glad to be here. And we also have with us um, Bain, what are we, you're executive editor now, I right? certainly am executive. Bain executive Don't I look editor. executive? Exactly. You should see my three-piece suit, everybody. <laughs> he's got a three-piece. It's wearing a Wisconsin jersey. Wisconsin. He's probably got uh, some some uh, some Green Bay underwear on under there somewhere, too. I almost put the Packers socks on, but they're white yeah. and they clash with the outfit. So Jim Menz is here as well. Um and let me uh, do a little spiel on Larry. It, he's a, This is straight, since I'm not exactly super prepared today, this is straight out of uh, the Siege biography. Um, Larry Correa is an award-winning competitive shooter and a movie prop gun master and was an accountant for many years. He's the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times bestselling Monster Hunter series. The first entry is Monster Hunter International, which I'm sure everyone out there knows if you're listening to this. Um, you're into these books, as well as Urban Fantasy Hardball Adventure Saga, The Grim Noir Chronicles, with first entry Hard Magic, and the epic fantasy series The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, with the first entry Son of the Black Sword. And there's going to be a sequel to that, by the way, um, I was hearing about just now. Uh, with John Ringo, he is the co-author of the Monster Hunter Memoirs series, including Monster Hunter Memoirs Grunge and Monster Hunter Memoirs Sinners. And... There's a third. Coming next year? Coming next July. year. Which is called? Monster Saints. Hunter Memoirs Saints. Saints is coming. Coming in July 2018. Larry lives in Utah with his wife and family. And Monster Hunter Siege is the sixth entry in the hugely popular Monster Hunter series. And it's the sixth one that's got a, a nice Alan uh, Pollock cover as well. This one's very silver. So... Um, I don't. I have not finished Siege, um, but uh, this is one. Where it's an Owen book, right? And it's yep. one where Owen deals with some of his uh, father stuff, right? Is oh yeah. That fair to say. 
Yeah, this is a t- Tony referred to this as my dad book. <laughs> what does she mean by that? Well, I just got, it gets into the themes of fatherhood. It's it's got some stuff with Owen um, uh, with his dad, and then it's also got some stuff with um, him going to be a father soon, and and coming to terms with that and what it means, and then also a little bit with the bad guy. But I won't get into that too much, uh, and just kind of the nature of the villain. Um, but uh, yeah, so Tony, Tony came back to me and and uh, when when she first read it and and pointed that out, and I I actually didn't know that. While I was writing it, that's kind of how it goes. But uh, uh, well, you, you you sometimes claim that you don't uh, sit around thinking about themes and such when you're writing. That you're that you're uh, half the time half the time you do, and the other half the time it's accidental. <laughs> so this was the accidental dad book. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. But it worked out really well. This is the first Monster Hunter that's that's outside of the U.S., isn't it? As well, that, um, that mainly. Well, uh, mainly, yeah. Um, they, yeah. All of them have bounced around a little bit, and we've gotten out of the country before. Um, but this one primarily it takes place uh, outside of the U.S. Um, In fact, a good part of it takes place outside our world. A good part of it takes place outside of our dimension, yes. uh, without giving too way too many spoilers. Um, uh, so yeah, but this one, this one actually, the big chunk of the, uh, it's leading up to a mission that actually takes place in Northern Russia that they're on. Uh, and then there's some spot, there's some parts leading up to that around the world where they go different places in preparation for the mission. Well, yeah, my movie pitch version of this is Owen's sick and tired of always reacting to the big bad doing what he wants to do. So he decides to take the fight to the bad guys. Yeah, so this time it, it, it's funny because it's it's called Siege, but so a lot of people uh, see when they first saw the title, they thought maybe that was like the good guys under Siege. No, no, it's the good guys laying Siege. Um, it's a good part of the book, so uh, they go they go on the offensive this time. Yeah, there's um they go to Russia to find the gates to hell or wherever the hell they're going, right? Yeah, so there is basically. some Russia as well in there. Um, what is some of the um, well, some of the tech, you, you, you mentioned that you, you consulted with Mike Massa to... Oh, okay. Some. Yeah, so Mike Mike's uh, another band author. If you guys don't know him, he's got a collaboration coming out with John Ringo, and he's written in the Black Tide Rising universe. Uh, really good guy, really sharp guy. Well, he's a uh, former Navy SEAL. And um, so I have a couple parts of this book involving an amphibious landing. So I drafted Massa uh, <laughs> specifically to make yeah. sure that I didn't screw up any of my naval warfare, naval special warfare stuff. Um, and he actually helped me pick out the right ship for it because they bought an old um, cargo ship, basically a uh, um, uh, specific kind. I won't give away too much, but the kind of thing where you could put a tank in it <laughs> and just drive it up to somebody's front door and uh, park it on their beach. And uh, So there might be tanks going into uh, other dimensions and... The- well, I, I, we don't get the tank into the other dimension because the gate's not big enough. No. But <laughs> not yet. But if it were, yeah. So it's, they bring a lot of hardware. They they bring a big party and they just park a boat on the bad guy's front doorstep uh, to serve as kind of a little mobile fire base. Well, not well. It's not mobile once they park it, obviously. But uh, had a lot of fun with that. So I, I brought it. I brought. I, I got Mike to to proofread that and make sure that I didn't screw up any of my uh, my stuff. And actually, he's a really good writer too. So he had a lot of really good commentary on everything else too. But uh, sharp guy. I'm really excited for his book. Cool. Yeah, we expect it to do well. Um, the what else could we say about the book without giving too much away? The, the I mean, what was it like to come back to Owen for one thing after doing the Frank's book? Well, it's been kind of fun because Owen's Owen's my main narrator for the series, and I've had a lot of fun with uh, opening it up into other characters, and so it keeps it fresh for me. So I'll do one book from his perspective, kind of the main narrator, the main story arc. Then I'll have one book where I diverge and go off with somebody else, and then I get to jump back and forth. It keeps it fresh. It keeps it interesting. Um, the the books not from his perspective are written in the third person, and I get to like kind of jump around a little bit more into more people's heads and tell a little wider story. Uh, and then it's fun to go back to Owen because that's my, my the first thing I ever written was from, uh, or the first thing I ever wrote was from his perspective. So it's kind of fun to uh, to go back and revisit that. But by jumping around so much, it keeps it fresh for me. So by the time I go back to write him again, I'm excited to. Um, I jump around enough, I never really get bored with any one person and get stuck. So 
uh, it's enabled me to keep the series going without, you know, getting too repetitive or bored. Does he, um, does he still carry that, uh, that amazing shotgun weapon that, uh, well, yeah, that made for him? Yeah, abomination. abomination. Yeah, yes and no. So a uh, big part of this, and there's actually a whole scene in there that harkens back to the very first book when he gets Abomination. Because what it is is uh, he has to go someplace where the shotgun just is too short range. He needs to use something, a longer range gun. He needs to use a rifle. And there's a great scene with him and Milo, who's, you know, uh, MHI's gun fairy slash weapons <laughs> expert, Mythbuster. Yeah. And uh, I, I, Milo might be my favorite. I love Milo. He's a great character. character. Anyway. Well, so there's this scene between the two where uh, Milo's trying to tell him he needs to get a different gun. And Milo's already got one picked out. And, uh, and, and so my fans have actually made T-shirts that, that talk about have death hippos on them. <laughs> and so where this comes from is uh, there's a part where him and Milo are walking along. And Milo picks out this rock that's a vaguely hippo-shaped rock at like 600 yards and uh, starts talking about how that's a death hippo and it's coming right at you. What are you going to do? You know, and, oh, yes. sorry, I shouldn't bump the table. I was like, <laughs> well, Milo was very excited. Good. And uh, so Owen's talking about what he would do and, and, and uh, Milo keeps correcting. He was like, no, because by then the death hippo would have melted you with its laser vision. And it's like, oh, come on, they can't have laser vision. And <laughs> just making crap up. All in a convoluted attempt to get Owen to switch to a rifle for the mission. But yeah, so it's we, a so hypothetical actually, death. Well, it's not the, it's a hypothetical death hippo, but the rifle's real, so actually I built the real gun. Um, so uh, Owen's gun is a, is a Cazador, is what it's called. And what it was is when I was uh, on last, or two years ago, I was on a uh, book tour, and I was going through Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I got contacted by a gun company in, in uh, Minnesota, uh, JP Enterprises, makes high-end rifles uh, for competition purposes, and they asked me to come to their factory. And I just mentioned in the next book, I was going to have to hook Owen up with a rifle. And they're like, ooh, what if we built it for you? <laughs> and so they did. I've got Owen's gun as a real gun that you could buy from a high-end yeah. gun company. We've, yeah, we have the, we actually have, a, it might be their catalog or an ad that shows that thing. Uh, yeah, it's funny. They, they it's actually, really they, so they took my rifle. Uh, so I, the first one was for me and they built it for me and I was shooting it. And uh, uh, a, a gun magazine wrote an article about it and they actually had, Owen Pitt art they, they in a gun magazine, which is kind of fun. I'm probably one of the only writers that gets that kind That's of treatment. Pretty cool fan base. Well, I, yeah, it was. I got a little personal anecdote to insert here. Larry, of course, as a competition shooter, used to shoot shotgun. And I bet many of you out there have had the pleasure of meeting Larry. Big, affable, almost teddy bear of a guy. So friendly, <laughs> always willing to talk to fans, always willing to geek out about books, about science fiction, about guns. Well, one day we were at Dragon Con visiting the Armory, and they had his his model of uh, Sega shotgun, right? I think so. Yeah, Sega shotgun. He used to shoot competitively, and they took it off the wall for him. And to see big, lovable, affable, six foot four, three hundred plus Larry hunch into an assault crouch over his shotgun <laughs> made the little creature in the back of my brain say. Fight or fright, and it was all about flight. I mean, you just want to, and that's somebody who I'd go behind kicking in any door with that shotgun well, in his hand. Shoot up, you all shoot business up. over that. I've got a hundred thousand rounds to different Segas, and so you get used to manipulating really fast. And so I didn't think it was either. I just, I, I can manipulate, I can manipulate a, a firearm very quickly. Yeah, it's <laughs> not like he was trying. He just, you know, picked up, looked at it, looked it over. And just went into the hunch, right into the assault hunch, <laughs> forward leaning, ready to take well, the kickback. If you're shooting three gun competition, you got to learn to shoot while you move. And right. when you move, it's not it's not a full run. It's kind right. of a, a a shuffle jog. But you can you know you're going uh, several miles an hour sideways shooting stuff. It's that's fun. Um, I just did a I, at the beginning of this month. I did a thousand yard class. Uh, I went down to New Mexico, and we and I actually took that. I took the Owen gun. I took the Casador down and uh, hit targets at a thousand yards with it wow and it, boy i'm a pretty good shooter but you want to get humbled go take a thousand yard class and yeah. all of a sudden you will feel like a scrub well, that's I, a damn long way i feel that I, way at I, yards. it's weaponized <laughs> math i i felt like such a I, I like i said i'm pretty confident at most things i'm pretty good but i went out for this and oh man i felt like a gomer it was so bad it's like you know you're holding with a 308 you're holding like 36 feet above the target and like with the wind like 16 feet to the side <laughs> lobbing them in there 
No, but it's a lot of fun. It was very, very educational. But the reason I did that is because the next book is uh, – the reason I took this class uh, from JP Enterprises down there was – I'm doing a, the next book is a collaboration with Sarah Hoyt. It's called Monster Hunter Guardian, and it's a Julie Shackelford novel. And as you know, Julie's the best shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually have a long-range uh, scene in Monster Hunter Siege where Owen's popping off at stuff with his rifle. But Owen's, um, his background's more like mine. He's a three-gun shooter, and so um, it wasn't necessarily about precision. It's about volume. <laughs> and so, plus he was shooting monsters at about the size of a, a rhinoceros. Um, and so he's just popping off shots and kind of walking them in as he sees the impact. But in Guardian, uh, Julie's precision. I mean, she is one shot, one kill. She's going to make this hit. She's going to read the wind. And so I, I went to take this class, and it was kind of fun. So as the instructor, uh, as a former Special Forces sniper instructor, and he was telling us stuff. So half the time I was taking notes to, like, improve myself. And the other half of the time, I was taking notes of, like, cool things to put in the book <laughs> or, like, things that Julie would think because, I mean, that's, like, her world. Yeah. Do you um, – it is – I mean, do you, how much is it uh, analytic and how much of it you just got to get the feel of, of somebody's more than half a mile? What is it? Uh, like, yeah, okay, so, so it's like – it's, yeah. it's an, okay, the analytical part is, is really important because um, that's, like, going to tell you what your holdover is. And they actually have ballistic software for this now where you can put all your load data and your ballistic coefficient and your – your temperature, your humidity, your barometric pressure. Barometric pressure will make like seven feet of difference. I mean, it's huge. Wow. So that's the science part. But then like the, the instinct part is reading the wind because wind is like some weird voodoo stuff. And uh, so we're shooting out across the desert. And um, I got this one scene in, in Guardian where Julie is taking a, one sh- taking a shot at 1,200 yards. Um, but uh, she's cheated. And so she has kind of like set little things out along the way. It's in a city. But she's set the little things along the way so she can see the wind um, to cheat. Because when you go out there, what is the instinct part is you're like watching the grass. Uh, but you're watching the grass right in front of you. You're watching the grass halfway out. You're watching the grass next to the target. Uh, bushes, trees, leaves, butterflies. <laughs> I mean, anything you can see out there moving, it's going to tell you a story. Because if the wind is blowing, the thing is over that distance, the wind can be blowing... Um, uh, one direction at a certain speed, and it can be blown in a completely different direction at a different speed, and you got to kind of put those two together. Uh, it's the first time since college I had to think in cosines. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, it was. So all you kids out there, trigonometry does help out sometimes. Yeah, especially is... <laughs> after the apocalypse when you need to make that long shot. <laughs> so, yeah. so I gotta ask the big reveal here. It's it, it's time for Larry to come clean. The only reason he's writing these Monster Hunter books is to find a way to write off his gun habit. It's it's. I imagine many of you already figured that out, but yes, that's what it's really all about. And thank God Larry loves his guns because we love well, the Well, I'm going to say like, so, okay, so if IRS auditor says, how did you write off this precision rifle class? I'm going to say, hey, the next book is all precision rifle stuff. Don't tell me how to do my job. I don't tell you how to do yours. My fan base, I got to get this stuff right. Oh, look so at all I need to know is what Larry's buying for his gun collection this year to find out what's coming next year in the fiction. <laughs> that's so true. If you actually look back over the last 10 years, that's fairly accurate. I, I think there may be a Bane.com article on this. It's actually been kind of fun. There's been a few times where I've bought guns, given them to characters, and then actually shot the gun a bunch and realized it wasn't as good as I thought it was. And then the next book, you notice the character has a different gun. <laughs> Not so much. Yeah. So, Jim, uh, what uh, you've edited a lot of the the Monster Hunter books. What um, how, did, how does it? What is it to edit, uh, Larry? Um, well, the toughest the part about working with Larry is that you get so sucked up and having so much fun, you sometimes forget to pay attention to the forest because you're having too much fun looking at all the cool trees. Um, on the other hand, I have to admit, sometimes you happen to be just the right guy for the particular book. When Larry was working on Monster Hunter Alpha, the the Earl Harbinger book. He was up there in the UP, and I'm a Wisconsin boy, born and bred, got oh, yeah. bleed the cheese and the green and gold. And Larry had some reference in there, a wonderful use of a, uh, well, what he had in the book was a 3,000-horsepower snowblower used to clear roads. And I had to point out to him, actually, 3,000-horsepower only goes on tracks for railroads. 2,000-horsepower is about as big as they come in wheeled vehicles because, you know, when you live up in Wisconsin, you know about these things. 
Yeah, Jim actually had some really good, really good editing on that. And there's a there's a scene in there where it's Lucinda Hood's birthday, oh, yeah. uh, the witch, and uh, that scene originally I just wrote the scene normally, and at the end she unwraps a little cupcake and sticks a candle in it for her birthday. And Jim's like, no, 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 open with the cupcake. That's right. Open with the cupcake. Create a little sympathy for your homicidal maniac. Yeah, cr- yeah. Create some sympathy for your homicidal necromancer witch. You know, but then it's like open with the cupcake and then back out and explain the situation. And I was like, oh, that's good. That's what editors do. The reveal. Yeah. Re- editors sometimes will take like these little things and just move and moving a cupcake from the end of a scene to the beginning of the scene made the whole scene so much better. Yeah, that, that was, that was, that was good. That was you. That was, that was a good call. Just doing my job. No, hey, I, I actually, as far as editing goes, I, I, I try to make life pretty easy. Yeah, for it's, my manuscripts it's not, are fairly. It's not clean. a lot of work working on Larry's books, but uh, I don't want to tell Tony that because I got dibs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. Uh, I did some of the, the black sword. Yeah. So, yeah, which was yeah, that was that was a fun one. I, uh, my only, I think, my only real input was that I thought maybe the arrows on the bridge. Were- yeah, I originally overdid it. I went a little too kung fu movie. I wanted at to first. believe it, you know. Well, yeah. And feel it, you know. It's like, geez, this guy's getting. Yeah, so I did tone that down. I, 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 I did tweak that scene because you were right. I, I looked at it and I was like, yeah, I went a little too kung fu movie in that. Which, uh, uh, yeah. So that that was tweaked down a little bit, and then we did the one where he got then he got whacked in the foot, and then he had to lift the foot off the the arrow. So yeah, I I, I changed all that. Well, you, the thing about Larry's fight scenes is that if he will, if it can be taken to the next level, he will take it. Like, yeah. tend to turn it up to 11. Yes. Well, it all depends on the kind of which series it is, because sometimes I can get away with that. Like if I'm writing Grim Noir and everybody basically has superpowers, I can kind of do that. But if I'm writing something where it's got to be a little more realistic then uh, yeah, well, you did uh, dead six. Yes. Too. And that one we were trying to keep, keep it a little more realistic uh, on the sequences um and so we we had to like back off a few things of uh of like how just to, what <laughs> just what the human body can and cannot do yeah but uh, and the thing that i like about owen is the fact that he gets the crap beat out of him and just keeps coming <laughs> and you, you want to feel him getting the crap beat out of him so oh yeah that guy gets the crap kicked out of him genomes oh, oh gee the genome scene is hilarious because <laughs> he just gets pummeled by by 10 gnomes and it is the funniest fight scene ever <laughs> We've we discussed that before on the. I mean, that is probably the classic. It may never be topped. <laughs> that that is one of the best fight scenes of all times. It, it inspired me to start a whole race for the Pathfinder gaming system. My brothers and I have genomes with permission, used with permission. So if you're a Pathfinder player out there and you want to create a, a path PFS Pathfinder Society genome, just drop an email to me and I'll we'll swear you in. Oh, That's another man. thing that you you guys both share, which is gaming, uh, role playing gaming. Yeah. Is that have you ever played together? A couple times at cons. Yeah, yeah, we've we, had the, yeah. we had uh, an epic fiasco. Night. We had an epic fiasco night at uh, LTUE uh, a couple years ago. Last year? Last year, just last year. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it was funny, and we had um, a couple other writers with us: Steve Diamond, Alan Barr, Peter Arulian. Yeah. And Peter Arulian will go dark and gross yeah, uh, in a game. <laughs> am I allowed to bring your daughter up? Yeah, yeah, we yeah, might his, as well. So we, we can his, tell the story. Larry's teenage daughter decided to hand me a dead hooker as a prop at the beginning <laughs> of the game. Okay, so for the record, we're really explain how. Okay, uh, so <laughs> Fiasco. The way it works is like a co- it's like a freeform Coen Brothers movie, in that everybody's. This was not a literal hooker, to be clear. This yeah, is purely yeah, fictional. Purely imaginative, imaginary hooker that my teenage dead daughter, hooker. dead body, gave to Jim. So what happened was it's like a Coen Brothers movie where everybody's playing a character and you have scenes. And it's an absurd, dark movie is what it is. And we were playing in this particular... Basically, you pick, there's, there's a bunch of different scenarios. The one we were doing was... Dirty Cops. Dirty Cops. And so, yeah. So Jim was the corrupt lieutenant, sip of whiskey... Uh, and, uh, so my, my daughter was the internal affairs, uh, cop that was trying to bust us. Oh, she was undercover and, um, that was her role. And I was playing a complete psychopath, which was fun because <laughs> I went dark. And so <laughs> you, you, everybody gets a certain prop at the beginning of the game. That's part of their background. And when Larry's daughter decided to randomly give the dead hooker to me, 
I, of course, immediately went to necrophilia. Little did I realize, having set the bar that low, Peter Aurelian would dig so much deeper. Oh, yeah, Peter. And like, it became a game of one-upsmanship between Larry and Peter about how low they could go. Well, because my, my thing was my, my, my guy was a psycho. That was like his thing that I was given. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to embrace it. But I wasn't. I didn't go like like violent guy. I went like completely delusional. So one point... Uh, there's this like we were having a scene, we had a crime scene where this dog walks out from behind a dumpster, or somebody has, a, and so I start having a conversation with the dog, like it's David Berkowitz's dog. So I look at Steve and put Steve on the spot. So all of a sudden, so Steve starts acting out the dog and <laughs> starts telling me all this really dark stuff. <laughs> and but my daughter, as this is going on, and, and for whatever reason, my daughter has given herself a British accent, right. and so we're going through my my sainted teenage <laughs> daughter. And I can, can I can I use bad words on this? Yeah, sure. Okay, okay. So we, we can edit. Okay, so so at one point Jim does something to hose my daughter and her investigation. So my daughter, in character, looks across and yells in, in with her British accent, "Suck a dick, sick whiskey!" <laughs> and she yells this at Jim. And as a father, there was a moment of. Oh my gosh, this is my sainted daughter saying this. Yeah. But also as a gamer, I was like, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was this it was a it was a it was a moment of, oh man, I'm either a really good dad or a really bad dad. Yeah. Well apparently both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it was a lot of fun. Um uh, Yeah, I, I, I try like whenever I go to cons and stuff, I'll try to do games with other with other people. Like uh or I mean I'm, I'm the reason I'm here in town is HonorCon. And so Saturday night, I'm doing a charity game where I'm running a Monster Hunter International uh, Savage Worlds role-playing game coming to Kickstarter next month. Um, and I'm uh, I'm GMing. Uh, so they had a bunch of people uh, donate money to the to the charity auction to get a spot at the table. And and so we're playing that tomorrow night. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. So you're you're the game master of of a Monster Hunter based game. That's, yeah, so that pretty be, much that's quite an experience. Yeah, so it's pretty much whatever I say goes, and I'm just <laughs> <laughs> not like in the book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, he's got no editor for this. <laughs> so the thing is, I, I I've never I never play Monster Hunter role playing game as a player because that would be so unfair to whoever is GMing. Because anytime any decision to be made, they just like look at me like, is that okay? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's tough to work when God's there to edit God's, you. Yes. And I'm like, no, at least I'm no, that's not how it works. Oh. <laughs> right. So uh, we'll explain this. Um, <laughs> explain the. The game that's coming out is based on it's a it, it's based on Monster Hunter. Is it within yeah? Another so system we did it. We did a Monster Hunter role playing game several years ago. We used hero hero system rules. Um, and the thing about Hero is it's real crunchy. It's fun, but it was it was a great book. Uh, but the problem was it, it's kind of a high barrier to entry for for new people. Uh, and a lot of my fans were new to this stuff. And so we're doing a new version of it uh, next month. We're um, we're using Savage Worlds rules, and if you if you're familiar with this stuff, it's really easy. It's really simple and really uh, really quick and fun to get into. Uh, and so that's why we're doing a new version, but all new artwork, and we're updating the. I, mean, I think I've written like seven books since then, or something. So we gotta update all the fluffy informational goodness and we set it up like an employee handbook so it's like the monster hunter international employee handbook of information for monster hunters and no it, it should be a lot of fun that's cool that's i mean this sounds like a labor of love for you um because it's your your thing here oh i love this and the guy that i actually hired that i teamed up with he uh, owns a game company is alan Barr owns uh gallant night games but that's uh, he's one of the guys I game with. He's in my regular group, and so that's when Jim's played with him. Yep. And so I've, I've been playing games with this guy for like six years, and and so when I when I needed to pick somebody to do this, is like it was kind of a no brainer for me because I, I I know the guy, trust the guy, and I played a lot of games with him. Yeah. What is the um when you when you are not writing, um, do you still shoot or do you? Do you game? Are you oh, hobbies. painting miniatures? Which is oh, another yeah. of your hobbies. Yeah, I'm a mini painting nerd. Um, so what? Okay, so what it was is the gun business was my business. It was my livelihood for many years, and so I did it nonstop and I did it professionally. And so what happens? I got kind of burned out. So when I got out of that, I kind of drifted away from guns for a few years. Didn't shoot at all. Um, and plus, three gun is like the most expensive hobby in the world. I mean, I mean, you can go. 
collect Fabergé eggs and it'd probably be cheaper than being a good three-gunner. Most of three-gunning is begging sponsors for donations. Um, no, it, it, it's it, it's really expensive hobby. And I, so I stepped away and I didn't do it for a few years. And so I needed another hobby and I needed a hobby that wasn't on the computer. I love video games, but I'm on the computer all day typing. So I needed something different. And so I decided to try mini painting, you know, painting little metal dudes. And oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> and I've been doing that for six years now and it was really fun. But then I got back into shooting a few years ago because my kids were getting older and uh, they were teenagers. And I was like, oh, man, I got to get these guys tuned up. I got to, you know, they're old enough. They really needed to know their stuff. And so I started teaching my kids again. And I realized, oh, man, this is really, really fun. And I really kind of missed it. So I've been getting back into that rather hardcore again. Um, not competing, though, because that is a giant time suck. And I got too many books to write. And then the gaming is I, I, I just do that for fun and creativity. And my game group is primarily a bunch of other writers. Um, and so it's really fun. We try to get to there at least once a month and just hang out. And um, it's really fun. Anytime there's like a really cool line used, we can kind of like everybody kind of eye- eyeballs each other to see who's going to steal it first. Mm-hmm. For, for what? <laughs> Dibs rules apply. Yeah. 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 And uh, it's, it's a good bunch of good bunch of guys though. And so it, it actually uh, the gaming helps my writing um, because a lot of times. People will do unexpected things that are really creative, and so a lot of times those things will show up in books, or other times characters that I'll use in books originally came to life as game characters. Uh, Sometimes mine and sometimes other people's. Um, uh, Toru from the Grim Noir Chronicles is one of my characters. Um, Jagdish, uh, Jagdish and Son of the Black Sword was actually somebody made up by Pat Tracy. Come on now, we mentioned Fiasco. We got to mention our favorite oh. character. Oh, which one? Oh, Krasnov. Oh, Krasnov. yes, yes. If you've read Monster Hunter Siege, Krasnov shows up in Monster Hunter, and Krasnov is one of my re- repeated um, role-playing game characters that I use for silly one-off games. He's a Russian mobster. He's a Russian mafia don, and he's shown up in like a dozen games. I've used him in fantasy. I've used him in sci-fi. I've used him in uh, everything, horror games, uh, fiasco. He's been a police detective. And so he showed up in Monster Hunter. And like I always play at cons. So I used Krasnov in a game one time with Jim Butcher. So when Jim Butcher read Monster Hunter Siege, he emails me. He's like, oh my gosh, you use Krasnov in a book? And I was like, dude, how can I not use Krasnov in a book? Uh, so yeah, I for so for me it actually helps my writing. Um, so that's cool. Yeah, so those are my hobbies: are basically gun shooting, mini painting, and role playing games. Mm-hmm. Raising your four kids and stuff, uh, and raising kids. But luckily, the kids participate in all that all that stuff too, so it works out well. You've been on a tour. Um, what's it like meeting all these people that that love your stuff? It must be. Um, interesting situation i mean because they also bring to it their own imagination that maybe is um, a, a different vision than yours that they've uh, oh yeah my, i have a great fan base my, my fan base is amazing i and there there's a lot of them and they're super enthusiastic and sometimes they go off in the weeds and do weird stuff we've got a really active facebook page it's the monster hunter international hunters unite facebook page and i think we got like seven or eight thousand people on there now and they will come up with the weirdest stuff and the weirdest damn questions about like my universes. Mm-hmm. And like, if this happens and this happens, like I have no idea. And then they'll tag me as like to answer these questions and I don't even know how to respond on half of them. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, they're super enthusiastic. This last tour I was, um, it was about two and a half weeks, I think three weeks on the road. Well, actually it was a little longer. We had a con at the beginning and the end and uh, was all over America. It's like a dozen airplane flights and hit a different city every day, wake up in a different hotel room. By the end, you can't remember where you are. But we had a lot of fun. Our Texas events were huge. They're crazy. We had 150 people in Dallas. It was nuts. Yeah. Yeah, I like that bookstore a lot. It's a huge bookstore. Really nice people. Yeah. But yeah, we filled it. We we packed that place. It was great. And we we had a and Dave Butler teamed up with me for that, and so we actually had a I had a musical opening act. Yeah, well, we just uh, <laughs> the week before last, um, Dave was uh, we I had Dave's uh, interview with Dave, and we interspersed it with cuts from his um, Witchy CD that he's been. Uh, oh man, I had because so. he he played the same song. So for three days, I was with Dave, 
uh, you know, all my Texas stops. And Dave would talk, take the first half an hour and play some songs. So I had Old King Andy Jackson stuck in my head, the song, for the rest <laughs> yeah. of book tour. And I would, I would be in the shower. Old King Andy Jackson. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah. So the next morning, I'd like, 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 for the rest of the book tour, I'd be like in the shower in the morning singing Old King Andy Jackson. And I'm like, damn it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he totally gave me an earworm. <laughs> That's cool. I mean, he's like he channels the that that uh, that Scotch Irish past somehow. Um, he's got a handle on that. He's a talented dude. Yeah. 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 So, well, that's that's really cool. Um, and now you're you're back to uh, working on Guardian Monster Hunter Guardian. Is that? Oh uh, well, Sarah's working on that. That's, that one's a collaboration because Sarah is the best Julie, young Julie Shackleford voice. Um, oh, okay. I mean, she just nails it. So it's it going to be a Sarah White and Larry Korea yeah, collaboration. Yeah, and so we're working on that now. But the one I'm actively working on myself is, um, uh, it's called House of Assassins, and it's the sequel to Son of the Black Sword. Excellent, excellent. Cool. Yeah, I'm really excited, really excited for that one, and I should be done by Christmas. And I know this was a subject of a recent podcast, but I'm going to give a shout-out to Larry's currently just available title, Monster Hunter Files. We mentioned Jim Butcher. i got to tell you, if there's any fans of Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, and I'm talking about the book, not the movie, nothing against the movie, very different thing. But if you're a fan of Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim, you got to check out the Butcher Story in Monster Hunter Files, a wonderful festrift set in the Monster Hunter universe. Bunch of writers who written short fiction set in Larry's universe just came out from Bane. Enjoy. Yeah, it's uh, it's out this month at booksellers everywhere. We so that's the Monster Hunter Files, edited by Larry Correa and Brian Thomas Schmidt, and um, Monster Hunter Siege, which is which is fairly recently out, two months ago, right? Um, by Larry Correa. At booksellers everywhere and uh guys uh jim Mins and larry korea thank you so much for for hanging out at the studio thanks great to thanks be for here. having me on nice to finally be here this is another entry in alliance of equals a Leaden universe novel by sharon lee and steve miller Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mount armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 15 Tarragon Jemiatha's Jumble Stop, Birth 12 Admiral Bunter, this is Tokol Lorlan addressing you from the bridge of Tarragon in Birth 12. The pilot's voice was calm and assured, which it had never failed of in their short time together. That unflappable manner might, Tolly thought, be considered a flaw by some, but he wasn't among their number. Logic and rule sets weren't enough to support a healthy intelligence. Inconvenient as they were, emotions, the ability to experience joy, satisfaction, chagrin, loss, were vital to the long-term viability of a self-aware intelligence. 
That wasn't to say that some personalities were more reserved than flamboyant. That Pilot Tokel fell on the reserved side of the line was, in Tolly's opinion, a feature, not a bug. She'd clearly been in a hurry to raise little Jemiatha Station here. In fact, she'd been impatient, quietly impatient and courteously thoughtful of the frailties of her teammates, but there wasn't one doubt in his mind that, had she been alone, Pilot Tokel would have taken their series of jumps, one right after another, with no more break than a skim-in to check the beacons before she was gone tween again. Right now, though, there wasn't the slightest hint of impatience or anger or trepidation. The only thing coming through that smooth voice was a sort of firm courtesy that ought to soothe the flayed nerves of an isolated and frightened newborn. At least he hoped so. I hear you, a voice came through the calm. The words were slow and oddly spaced, but there was inflection, even in so brief a declaration. This was not the voice of a machine. Good, Tokol said. I am pleased to make your acquaintance, and I apologize for being so long to come to you. Why are you here? the Admiral asked, and Tolly nodded to himself. Perfectly reasonable question. I was sent to assist you in your situation here. I was told to say that the contents of file name Tokol are now available to you. There was a pause, longer than it should have taken even an unaware comp to access a file, and you are the teacher who was promised. Slight query inflection there. Well, Tolly thought, why not? I am not myself the teacher, Tokel said. I accompany the teacher and will assist him. With our party is also a backup pilot guard and another less experienced teacher. The teacher would like to speak with you and make arrangements to come to you. Come to me, all of these. There was panic in the slow voice. Why should there be so many? Tolly leaned forward, his fingers shaping a request for the calm. Tokel assigned it to him immediately. Admiral Bunter, this is mentor Tolly Jones, he said, his voice warm and friendly like it naturally was, thanks to the school and its parameters. I'm the teacher you were promised. I'd like to inspect your physical plants, make sure you're firmly situated. That's the first step. I can come aboard myself the first time, if you'd rather, and we can get to know each other better. I understand you might be suspicious of somebody you never heard of asking to bring a crowd on deck. Firmly situated, the admiral repeated. I am not firmly situated. My environments are at risk. Only the packet boat holds air. My resources are overutilized. I am to protect the station from pirates. That's right, Tolly said soothingly. You're doing a real good job there from what Stu tells me. Stu. Tolly squinted, wishing he could see through the comm to where the Admiral kept station. Sure, Stu, Tolly said, and waited. If dementia had already set in, but Admiral Bunter broke his silence. Stu does not think all pirates must be stopped. That sent a chill down the back, so it did. Tolly shook his head, smiled, and leaned into the board. 
I think you'll find Stu's a hard liner on the subject of pirates, he said. Problem is, words have meanings, and definitions take flex. That's what I'm here to teach you about, if you're willing. I am willing. That sounded very nearly eager, and the follow-up was encouraging as well. Please transmit your data, Mentor Tolly Jones. I wish to review it and do research before I allow you on any of my ships. Perfectly reasonable, Tolly said, pushing the button that sent his professional portfolio to Admiral Bunter. I'd want to do exactly the same in your place. This pilot guard and lesser teacher, I will have their data too. Sure thing, said Tolly agreeably. Haz's file, provided by Clan Corval, went next. He waited on sending Inkirani Yo's info. They were, in fact, making this first contact without Inky, as she asked to be called by friends present. Inky had been proactive in another direction altogether and had identified six vessels among Jemiatha's inventory of decommissioned ships roomy enough to accept a hard installation and big-brained enough to accommodate the admiral. She'd volunteered to do a preliminary triage with Stu, narrowing the list down to no more than three. Those three would then need a boots-on-deck inspect and only hope one was suitable. Else they'd be moving the admiral into the stations system, which might not meet with favor. I have accessed the file of Hazenthul Norfelium, Admiral Bunter stated. She is not a teacher. I wouldn't set her aside too quick as a teacher. Tolly said. But you know Tolkol just told you Haz is a pilot guard. The universe isn't exactly safe, and we wanted to make sure we got to you without any further delays. There are pirates? There are pirates everywhere, but not everyone is a pirate, Tolly said, putting so much conviction in his voice that the truth of what he said couldn't help but hit center. Of course, whether there was a center to hit, Admiral Bunter being the patchwork thing that he was, there came another pause before the Admiral spoke again, his voice sounding strained. I will receive the data for the lesser teacher. That's assistant mentor, Tolly corrected gently. We're an alliance of equals here. Everybody brings something valuable to the team. The assistant mentor now, Inkirani Yo is her name, and he pressed the key for the third time. You should have her file now. I have it, the admiral said, and yes, his voice was definitely slurred now. Tolly shivered, hoping that they hadn't just blown one of the old comps. I will study these things Admiral Bunter stated. Good, Tolly said briskly. When may I come aboard? After I have studied and thought, the Admiral said. At what hour? Tokol asked, taking the calm back. May we call again, Admiral? Three station hours, came the unsteady reply. Call back then, Admiral Bunter, out. The calm light snapped from active to waiting. Tolly sighed and sat back in his chair. He is badly wounded, Hasenthal said from her perch on the observer's chair. I think you're right, Has, he said heavily and looked to first board. We might be too late, pilot. If that little bit of interaction wore him out, he's not strong enough to survive a move. 
Tokul raised her head, the screen showing the lines of a woman's determined face. You will try, though, mentor. He took a deep breath. Pilot Tokul had some personal investment in this project, that was clear. And he wanted to disappoint her even less than he wanted to fail the Admiral. Brought into this nasty old universe unasked and abandoned to fend for himself with too few rules to guide him. I'll try, pilot, he said, and shivered, like he had maybe promised too much. Ship togs had been laid out on a nearby chair, and he pulled them on, taking note of the smooth hands that did the work, the slim, unmarked feet, firm knees, and flat belly. There was no mirror so that he might survey the rest of himself, but what he could see was enough to wake another sort of shiver. He was an old man, his waist soft and his knees knobby. His hands bore the shadows of scars gained in youth, and the skin around the knuckles was stretched. This body, which dressed itself at his command, was the body of a young man. He settled the sweater and turned to face his companion. Aliana, he said. And it was the arid plain, he recalled now, and her finding of those other doors for them to try. Aliana, he said, his own voice in his ears, deep and rough and grainy as ever it had been. What place is this? Before she could reply, the door opened smartly, and they both turned as a dark-haired man entered. He was taller than Dov, black hair tipped with red, and a closely trimmed dark beard, despite the testimony of which he did not seem quite Terran. He was dressed as they were, in simple sweater and pants. His feet were bare. Dov remembered him very well, and the memory did not soothe him. I beg your pardon, Pilot Yosfelium, Uncle said, his voice bearing a slight accent that was neither Leaden nor Terran. You and your lady are guests aboard my own ship, Vivalange Prospero. The injuries you sustained at Moonstruck made it necessary that I act quickly and upon my own recognizance. I did not, of course, wish to lose so able an ally. Pod 78, Dov interrupted. It was disarmed. You did indeed complete the task your Delm had set upon you, despite the distraction provided by those who wished to subvert the installation to their own use. And my ship? Aliana asked, and Dov marked the eagerness in her voice. Where is Ride the Luck? Uncle turned a sober face to her. Pilot, it grieves me to bring you the news. Ride the Luck was destroyed by enemy action as it sat at dock on Moonstruck. The unfamiliar round face of the woman who called herself Aliana paled. She drew a hard breath as if she had been dealt a crippling blow. Which she had been, Dav thought. A pilot deprived of her ship would feel the loss like a knife to the heart. They brought a cyclops against your ship, Uncle said, softening his voice. It fired to defend itself, but against so much. All honor, she whispered and averted her face. She was a worthy ship. Indeed. Our ship killed, and myself badly injured, Dav said, after a moment. You took it upon yourself to bring me to your own vessel. He held out his unmarred hands, soft palms turned up. This is not the work of an auto-dock unit. Pilot, it is not. I will tell you plainly, 
You had lain too near to death and for too long a time. The autodoc was unable to restore you wholly. And thus I made my next decision, which was that it would not be the work of a friend to deprive Corval of two of its treasures in these times of strife and trouble. He bowed slightly. I therefore used those instruments at my command and brought you both into new, undamaged bodies. How did you know, Dov asked, that there were two? Uncle smiled. Why, pilot, you told me yourself. When it had become plain that the dock had done all that it could and those efforts were insufficient, we roused you and offered the pods from your jacket pocket, thinking that they might accomplish what we could not. The first you refused by reason that it was Aliana's. He inclined his head to her. The second you also refused, stating that it was not ripe. And you took that to mean that you must preserve me until the pod was ripe? Pilot, no. I took it to mean that Corval's damned tree was perhaps more far-sighted than I. It might dice with the universe, but I could not afford to bet against it. He sounded annoyed, did Uncle. Dov felt a certain amount of sympathy. This process of bringing us into undamaged bodies, he prompted, suppressing yet another shiver. Uncle inclined his head. Yes, he murmured, and met Dov's eyes. For you, the process was, let us say, simple. We had an overabundance of your genetic material with which to work. The body in which you now reside is, genetically, Dov Yosfelium Clan Corval. However, he looked to Aliana who returned his regard placidly, then he turned his gaze again to Dov. For Pilot Kalin, we had no such abundance of material. We were therefore forced to improvise. Those things that we were able to ascertain, eye and hair color, skin tone, height, cosmetic matters, you understand, those things we programmed into the receiving vessel. The blank, Aliana said, and he nodded to her. Indeed, the blank. Pilot Kalin will scan as Liaden, but she will not scan as Aliana Kalin. He paused. Dov mentally reviewed a pilot's exercise for calmness. Aliana was, they both were, residing within vat-grown bodies, which was disturbing enough that those bodies had been grown by the uncle, who was occasionally a fellow traveler, but never precisely a friend, a man known for putting his own advantage first over the centuries of his existence. There is, uncle said, interrupting these thoughts. His voice was gentle now. There is a known effect when a personality is transferred into an unseeded blank. You understand that the material is, by design, elastic, open to manipulation and suggestion. It remains so for a period following a transfer. During this period, the personality may, and very often does, impose itself upon the body, which will come to look very much like the body the personality recalls. He bowed to Aliana. She inclined her head. I am grateful, she said, which waked another shiver that Dov sternly repressed. Thank you, uncle, for the service you have performed on my behalf. Aliana was grateful. Well, and so she might be, embodied after so many years a ghost. Doubtless, the uncle had counted upon their gratitude in his calculations regarding their lives. He spoke true. 
Dove considered when he said that he wished to avoid Corval's anger. His own proclivities and practices would have convinced him that the Delm would prefer to receive living elders back into the clan than the news of their deaths. Dov had been Delm of Corval, as had Aliana beside him. He was inclined to think that he might refuse the return of his elders once the manner of their survival had been made known to him. Who could know what the uncle bred into his blanks? How indeed could he trust himself when he had been laid open by this man who always and ever played his own game? And Aliana? She seemed to be Aliana, despite the face that was the wrong shape and her apparent youth. Certainly, she believed herself to be Aliana, as he believed himself to be Dav. Now, Uncle said briskly, I have kept you here too long, talking. I must insist that you eat. There is a light nuncheon laid just out here in the common room. I will, by your leave, return to my own business. When you have eaten, Dulcie will escort you to the compartment that has been made ready for you and explain to you the protocols and exercises which are necessary to bring you to your full capacities. He bowed once more and swept an arm out, inviting them to precede him out of the room to the common area where a table was laid and a platter of dainty sandwiches awaited. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com, to Bain intern Taylor Panichone, and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the leaking entropic content of lost wallets and misplaced keychains, truculent Sal's ears that adamantly refuse to be transformed into silk purses by nanotech or run amok, and the thanks and praise of a grateful Monster Hunter Nation for Larry Correa, author of Monster Hunter Siege. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 